0: Listening to the Africa is a Country podcast. And my name is William Shorkey. I'm deputy editor at Africa as a Country. And the podcast is our talk and interview show on politics, history, and culture on the African continent from a left perspective. Please subscribe to us wherever you listen to your podcasts and give us some feedback. Tell us what you like, what you don't like, who you think we should interview next, and we will integrate whatever you say as much as we can. If you missed our last episode, it was an interview with the South African political theorist Christopher McMichael about his latest book, Shoot to Kill, which is about the history of police power and violence in South Africa. And the interview you're about to listen to is with Zachary Levinson on his new book, Delivery as Dispossession, which is about the politics of eviction and housing occupations in post-apartheid South Africa. Enjoy. Joining us on the program is Zachary Levinson, who's an assistant professor of sociology at the University of North Carolina, Greensboro, as well as a senior research associate at the University of Johannesburg. His work, which combines political and urban sociology, has appeared in Qualitative Sociology, Urban Studies, the Journal of Agrarian Change and International Sociology, among other venues, and he contributes a lot of public writing, including for Africa is a country, so it's great to have him on the program today. And the reason he's joining us is to talk about his latest book, which is titled Delivery as Dispossession, Land Occupation and Eviction in the Post-Apartheid City, which came out this year with Oxford University Press, and it is about the politics of housing in South Africa. Zach, welcome to the program.
1: Hey, great to be here, Will. Thanks. Thanks for having me.
0: So, I mean, housing occupations and the evictions which they provoke um, has become something of, of, of a phenomenon that's taken for granted in South Africa, it's treated as an everyday occurrence that doesn't arouse much public outcry or controversy and the underlying logic of these occupations and the evictions or rather the evictions um are, are accepted but that kind of changed for a very brief period i don't know if you recall but in the middle of 2020 there was an eviction that took place in the city of cape town which we'll talk about in a second uh, in kailicha where a man Bulelani was evicted from his house and and he was naked and this is the fact which caused a lot of controversy and the city of cape town did its usual thing where It spoke a bit about how the eviction had to happen because the land was being illegally occupied, and this was land that was earmarked for for public housing. Um, And again, it was a very strange episode because a lot of the controversy was to do with how the eviction happened rather than the eviction itself. So. This is all a lead up to the question of, for, for an international audience who might not understand how evictions work in South Africa, why they're a regular occurrence and how the state tries to justify them, could you could you talk briefly about evictions in South Africa, uh, evictions in the city of Cape Town in particular, where, which is where your research is drawn from, um, and, and how the South African state justifies these evictions? Because often it's, it's a case of people occupying the land, doing nothing but simply living there. But for some reason, this is, is something that the state has to oppose and, and intervene to end.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think that's, that's a spot on characterization where when there's outcry over evictions, it tends to be around a kind of moral outcry around how an eviction is carried out, as you say, rather than the fact of eviction. Um, and, and, you know, part of the problem is that if you were to ask, all right, what is the scale of this problem or, uh, there isn't publicly released data coming from the Department of Human Settlements on a national level or let alone on a, on a provincial or municipal level. And so, you know, when I actually started this project, it was supposed to be a quantitative one. Mm-hmm. I had a background in stats and I was going to use geographic information system software. And I was planning to map evictions and then correlate with development projects and sort of trace what I call the eviction frontiers. The problem is there's no readily accessible data, or rather there is GIS-coded data that each municipality has, but they don't release that because um, largely they're, they're afraid that it will be leaked and then facilitate new land occupation. So if they're to say, you um, leak where they're about to install potable water taps, or you know, then they're terrified that people are going to occupy that land. Now, in terms of the broader logic of eviction, one thing I'll say for an international audience is that uh, I know in, in the US where I'm based, for example, there's been quite a lot of, of writing on evictions lately, like last five or six years, um, most famously probably Matthew Desmond's book Evicted won the Pulitzer. Um, this is a really different kind of eviction. Mm-hmm. So the eviction of renters, whether in South Africa or the US, is the renters. It's on an individualized basis. But when we're talking about a land occupation, um, we're not talking about a few people squatting on the median in a US context or living under a bridge and tents, or... we're often talking about massive segments of population. So the land occupations I, I studied ranged from in the beginning. Like the first day of the occupation one to five thousand people Um, and some of them have grown well above ten thousand people today Um, There are of course occupations that are in the tens of thousands now i think the tricky thing here is there's a lot of writing in south africa in particular but i think in much of the post-colonial world on um, informal housing Mm. and so it goes under various names you know i think a lot of people got mad when Mike Davis published Planet of Slums and referred to them as slums. Um, I think these days most people refer to informal settlements or others to shack settlements, but self built housing, auto construction, whatever national context you're writing in, some version of this phrase. But the question I was interested in is where do these informal settlements come from? Or sort of what's the process of their emergence, which is a land occupation?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Interestingly, from the city government's perspective, there's no official distinction, but there tends to be this moralizing distinction between informal settlements are established and therefore okay, land occupations are in process and therefore immoral. Now, we might ask something like, all right, if somewhere in the neighborhood of one in five South African urban citizens Is living in a shack. So something like 20% of the urban population. Obviously, they gotta go somewhere. Like it almost seems too logical to say out loud. Like we're not talking four people, we're talking, we don't have good data on this. So it's between 15 and 25%, but depending on city. So let's just say 20% to make it easy. They've got to go somewhere. Now the post apartheid government. And this is a really important kind of background, I think, to, to these evictions. The post-apartheid government began to deliver housing. And the problem is that, so most people assume that um, that you know apartheid was this moment of pure dispossession. And then we get to the post-apartheid period and its delivery, as in the title, housing delivery, right? Mm-hmm. The problem is, first of all, when we look at that delivery system, it was created under apartheid. So if you ask, like, all right, kailicha that, that you mentioned, well, constructed in 1983, it's not some early apartheid period. Why? There are forced removals. So people who know the history of crossroads and um, there are forced removals and people are forcibly relocated and they construct and actually deliver housing in kailicha Same with Mitchell's Plain. So Mitchell's Plain is constructed where I um, did my study, second largest township in Cape Town when district six was forcibly evicted before relocated there. So in the book, I argue that that sort of delivery of housing enabled this possession. Mm-hmm. racialized dispossession, right? It's a racist forced removal of people under apartheid enabled by housing delivery. Mm-hmm. And it kind of flips, I argue, after apartheid. So instead of saying, it's just about the government delivering housing, and they did deliver housing, 4 million formal homes. Um, and that's you know nothing to sneeze at. Um, I can't think of a, a comparable housing delivery program other than there's one in Brazil until uh, the coup that forced out uh, Dilma Rousseff when Temer was in office, and then they ended their housing delivery program. Who knows, maybe Lula will bring it back. Maybe. But, um, so you have the delivery of all this housing. It plays out in a really interesting way. I argue in the book that eviction or what I call dispossession, that dispossession
0: enables delivery
1: or so housing officials think.
0: And why why is that? To so ask a question about that, because I think I find it a very fascinating point, because the the important political context which gives rise to these housing occupations is... The fact of the post-apartheid state's uh, incapacity to deliver housing at pace with the need. So the need has started to outstrip the state's ability to, to deliver these houses. And what these occupations effectively are is people becoming responsible for their own housing, almost accepting that they are unlikely to receive accommodation from the state. And so they'll take it upon themselves to provide their own shelter. And one would think that a state which is undercapacitated, which is, has limited resources, would, would embrace this. And this would conform with the logic of, of neoliberalism, where the responsibility to access essential services is outsourced to the citizen and um devolved from the state um but that's not the case in south africa and as you've just said now the, the 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 view from the state is that these occupations are an obstacle to their ability to, to deliver houses how does how does that end up yeah it's
1: weird and, and i want to be really careful with the language i mean i think you're spot on here that this is you know self-provisioning is I mean, it's almost textbook neoliberalism to the point where the guy who wrote the textbook, the Peruvian economist, Hernando de Soto advocated just this land occupations and then government, basically uh, undercapacitated or incapacitated um, post-colonial states should then title that land and then people own something. And what happens in South Africa, and I, I mean I was looking at Cape Town, but it but I also did a little work on this in Durban and Johannesburg, and it's pretty comparable. What ends up happening um, is that, yeah, so the government is delivering houses, mm-hmm. but they can't possibly deliver, you know, you know, it's if the idea is to remedy essentially the forced removals of apartheid through housing delivery. The scale is enormous. And so the problem then Is that they don't have as you said um really uh sufficient supply and so what winds up happening is that there's a waiting list and this this waiting list also dates from the apartheid period but it used to proceed far more efficiently you know i'm not one of these who's like not into apartheid nostalgia or anything but but there is this um discourse that you often hear about well housing delivery proceeded in the late apartheid period in a better way And what what ends up happening and, you know, I don't want to glorify or romanticize that. That's partially a misremembering and partially a kind of romanticization. Mm -hmm. But what I'll say is that um, in undersupplying housing and not being able to keep pace with um, with the scale of need, you wind up with an enormous backlog of housing. And when you look at the backlog year to year on a municipal basis, so looking at each municipality, often it has remained constant if not increased since the end of apartheid so you know in a sense it's uh, an impossible task um and it's not to say it's not difficult from the state's perspective but and here's the the important caveat in the meantime and what is this meantime i should say in this meantime when people are on the waiting list people should wait patiently they're told Now, how long is this? On average, the Socioeconomic Rights Institute in Johannesburg estimates now in Cape Town, the average wait time is 60 years, 6-0. Well, the average life expectancy in South Africa is just over 60 years. So that's not going to work for obvious reasons. And so what do people do? They occupy land in the meantime, because what other option do they have? Now, where this is seen as a threat, and why it prompts eviction is that housing officials see the, these new land, you know, and I'm being a little reductive here and talking about housing officials in general instead of naming one or something. But, but in shorthand, let me say housing officials see these new occupations as an embarrassment because they're supposed to be resolving in for, uh, urban informality through housing delivery. And so paradoxically, these new Settlements that only emerge because they're waiting for housing. These new settlements are then seen as this kind of thorn in the, the side of the state um, and housing officials. So before they order their eviction, here's what actually often happens if it's if it starts out as a small occupation, housing officials try to bump those people to the top of the waiting list and get them quickly included in a project that it's not. Um, you're not gonna see stuff written about this and it's kind of like all under the table and occasionally they'll talk about it. I have a bunch of interviews about this with with, the city of Cape Town housing officials, but they bump them to the top of the list. This is really significant because then, retroactively, they smear these people as what they call queue jumpers. Mm. They weren't trying to jump the queue. They occupy land because they need housing in the meantime. Housing officials bump them up. If anything, it's housing officials who actually produce the queue jumper, the figure of the queue jumper. But then they blame the people they're calling queue jumpers for queue jumping when they never intended to. I mean, obviously, yeah, if someone says, here's a house, they're going to take a house. But their intention in occupying land isn't to get to the top of the waiting list now, now, now. It's to occupy land because they need somewhere to be. Mm-hmm. And so all of this is a, a roundabout way of saying then that this becomes the rationale for eviction. Then what, what winds up happening then is housing officials, when they see a new land occupation, but they don't have homes to bump these people to the top to say, oh, these people are occupying land because they want a quick home. They're queue jumpers. Let's get them. So you have this moralizing distinction between queue jumpers as a kind of undeserving poor and those who wait patiently as a deserving poor. Deserving of inclusion in in housing delivery. And the final thing I'll say about this is there's a real problem because there aren't two different groups. Those are the same people. The same people who are waiting patiently are the queue jumpers or who are being produced as queue jumpers by government officials, if that makes sense. Um, and so then this becomes a rationale for eviction. So when I started this project, I assumed from reading a lot of um, activist literature and just what I was hearing on the ground, that this was about real estate development and gentrification and just making a quick buck. I almost wanted that to be the case for the sake of making a parsimonious, straightforward argument. And what I found was something quite different where, um, I mean, you just pointed to this case in Kailica where the eviction proceeded in the name of providing social housing or uh, and that's something you hear all the time. Or like one of the cases I looked at, Mitchell's Plain. It was a sports field, and they were supposed to build some kind of social housing development after. It was evicted nine years ago. Nothing is on that land. I go back every time I'm there.
0: Mm, mm. Um, yeah. What's What's fascinating? Yeah, there's a lot that that I want to ask now, but and I want to get to to the particular areas that you look at, but thinking about how housing occupations are rendered in the perceptions of the state as as groups of people seeking accommodation and seeking it impatiently, and then they get bumped up the list and retrospectively portrayed and slandered as as queue jumpers. Um, But but you argue that's... that's often not what these communities want. These communities want to right. be left alone. And what's interesting is that this rendering is, is not only something that the state readily partakes in, but also progressives in South Africa. I mean, of course, don't want don't to generalize and have to be very careful about which groups we're talking about. But I think that yeah. uh, throughout the Global South as a whole, there is... Uh, an attitude of of or, or an attitude towards housing occupations as being the the locus for some kind of mobilizational ferment and as being a kind of vanguard for mm-hmm. urban housing struggles. But and I mean this is this is where I think a book is really interesting. Is that on the one hand, um, you argue that the The political objectives that these groups seek is to be left alone, which at face value doesn't really seem like a political objective because it doesn't indicate an an intention to sort of enter the political arena and contest for power and shape urban housing policy and so on and so forth. But uh, that activity in and of itself is always already Political, even if it has a, a, a modest political objective, so to speak, and and so we shouldn't um, deny these groups their agency and and see them as 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 mostly um, sort of seeking a, a withdrawal from society. And you use these uh, two concepts of civil society articulations, which are inherently political society articulations, um, which I'd like uh, like you to expand upon. Um, as you answer as well
1: great yeah no I mean I think this is a really
0: important point here one one reason I wrote this
1: book and got into this stuff in the first place was a kind of um you know I was a little dissatisfied with the way that I was seeing land occupations and really urban struggles in general covered in South Africa um both you know broadly by the left and um in academic research. And I think there's this almost overemphasis on formal social movements. And it's not to say that I don't think people should study them, of course, they should. But I think land occupations were imagined as kind of like all proceeding in the way that Abkhlaali Basem Jandolo proceeded in its heyday or something like this. Yeah. Um, in practice, I mean, if if we're talking 20% of the urban population living in shacks. It's a pretty mundane affair. These aren't all revolutionaries. Or, it's all kinds of people. Um, now, what I will say is that um, what I'm not what I'm not saying here is that it's not an important act. And I do think politically, um, land occupation is a crucial project. It's really, I think, you know, as much as there is a t- there's talk periodically, especially a couple years ago in Parliament around expropriation without compensation. And um, I mean, if you think about the lack of, of land reform after apartheid, that today, when, when, if, when I ask housing officials, why don't you build social housing closer to the city center? Why is it always either or rendering the geography of apartheid permanent by turning shacks into houses where people were, were forced under apartheid, or they're further peripheralized to anywhere from Atlantis to Blue Downs, and in, in the case of Cape Town, or I mean, you know, comparable in, in Joburg when you think about people being moved to the far stretches of Akuraleni. And um now. I think that land occupation is really, really important as a collective project of essentially affecting land reform yourself, Mm. Um, not to romanticize it or valorize it, but, and here's the the caveat, I think people underestimate or tended to underestimate the conditions under which um, land occupations are occurring and how difficult it is for land occupation to turn into something we might like to see as a as whether we call it a revolutionary organization or a social movement or a left force or whatever we're talking about here we have to ask why is it that it's so infrequent um to the point where um even some of the better known groups or when you know i remember a couple years ago reading about One uh, one of the two factions in Abathlali going into the DA and forming this alliance and weird, right? Well, why are they doing that? And why are land occupations playing out in this way? This is the civil and political society stuff. So in the book, I draw on on the work of um, the Italian Marxist Antonio Gramsci and talk about, you know, he has this concept that's thrown around a lot. And I tried to hegemony. And I tried to show what it looks like in practice. So what happens is people are, are engaged in these land occupations. And in the book, I, I studied two land occupations very closely, both occurring in Mitchell's Plain in Cape town, roughly simultaneously. Um, one was just after the other. And when people occupy land, they want to be left alone. They're not occupying land to communicate with the state, to make a demand on the state, to ask from the state. Sure, you'll find people who are doing that. I'm not suggesting this is every land occupier ever. But by and large, people wanted to evade the gaze of the state and be left alone so they could build in the meanwhile as they're on the housing waiting list. What winds up happening pretty soon, the state shows up. So first, contact is going to be with the anti-land invasion unit, which people imagine as like um, some military force, but actually in Cape Town, they're not allowed. It, it varies by city. So in Cape Town, they're part of the Department of Human Settlements In Joburg, they tend to be, uh, they tend to contract private security firms, Durban, it's a combination, but in Cape Town, where it's part of, of the city government, they can't forcibly remove anyone. So it's kind of like a monitoring organization. And then they work with with SAPS, the police who show up and they do, they're the the pure repressive arm. So the two of them are working together and then pretty soon it it winds up in court and then you wind up with this, and I trace this in the book, these kind of interminable, um, you know, it's just one court date after another and the dates proliferate and of course, Court is in town. And so people figure out how you're going to get from Mitchell's plane by 830 in the morning to the high court on Long Street in downtown Cape Town, um, which it's a schlep. You mm-hmm. know, this is no quick little thing. And often they're alerted last minute. The communication isn't very transparent. And then they wind, wind up doing something really different. If in the beginning, their project was let's build a land occupation and make this work. Pretty soon it's, let's win our court case and get tolerated. Um, And so this is important because it shifts focus from something we might imagine like a social movement, but it's a little different than, you know, the classic way that sociologists have talked about social movements is as these organizations making demands on the state. Here, if that's a social movement, it's not really a social movement then. It's people who are without the mediation of the state, appropriating land, taking what they need and using
0: mm.
1: And so in and of itself, I would say, it's not a particularly, yeah, I think it's great, but it doesn't mean it's a revolutionary act in the mm. sense of, if we want to say, now the experience of repression is, so the number of people and land occupations that I've encountered that didn't even finish elementary school, but now identify in various um, various revolutionary groups um, from Marxist to black nationalists all sorts it's disproportionate why well they're forced to organize mm. every day they're dealing with, with the police every day they're dealing with the courts they're forced to organize
0: mm. and, and to, to start talking about because um, you mentioned earlier that the the conditions to organize are incredibly adverse. And Mm. that explains why the politicization or the further politicization of these movements happens so infrequently. To talk about those conditions and and which factors influence successful organization to unsuccessful Mm. organization, bearing in mind that, as you said, the objective ultimately is to be left alone and to evade the gaze of the state. Uh, I want to jump into the two areas that you look at. One place is Sikalo in Mitchell's Plain, and they were able to successfully evade the gaze of the state. And the other is Cup Club. Um And these two communities undertake different organizational strategies um, and, and ones which um, thereby shape the, the various degrees of success that um that they achieve could you could you talk a little bit about these these two places and and what happens to both of them and what are the factors which swung one in in the direction of success and the other in the direction of of eviction absolutely
1: um no i mean i think this is really the meat of the book and the kind of ethnographic chapters draw this out now i want to be careful let me just insert a caveat here which is to say that I think it would be easy for me to say, um, in the success case, they organized this way; everyone should do that. In the failure case, they organized this way; no one should do that. In the book, I talk about not just those as strategies, but why those strategies emerged and that those have histories too. So mm-hmm. part of what I'm trying to do in the book is to say, instead of thinking about the state as something that evicts from on high, instead say how the state sees populations so you know James Scott has that famous book seeing like a state well how the state sees they see populations but populations aren't just there we can't naturalize them as features of the landscape so how people see the state affects how they organize which affects how the state sees them and so I try to have this relational view as I call it in the book now in the case of Captain's Clip, in Mitchell's Plain, something really curious happens. Um, I almost couldn't believe my eyes. There's this this group that was called the Mitchell's Plain Backyard Dwellers Association that forms. Um, Very few of its members were actually backyard dwellers. And for those who are listening and are wondering what is a backyard dweller, in a number of townships in Cape Town, um, especially so-called colored townships, but um, a number of them, it can be more common in an area if you're gonna live in a shack or an informal housing to live in a backyard than in an informal settlement. So typically when we hear about shacks, we hear about like, oh, living in this big sprawling settlement. But many people will live in the backyard of a formal house for a number of reasons, including security, um, including access to the bathroom and the house. Maybe they've reached some agreement, potable water. And so this Mitchell's Plain Backyard Dwellers Association Goes around an area of Mitchell's Plain called Tafelsich, one of the poorer areas of, of Mitchell's Plain, and then some of the nearby ones too, Beacon Valley. And, but the more the poorer and more working class areas of Mitchell's Plain, not the, the whole thing, isn't work. But like, um, and what they do is they start to call these meetings, and what they're they're organizing this land occupation in Captain's Cliff just down the road. Um, they're viewing it in a really specific way. They are, or rather I should say, they're articulating it in a a specific way. They're putting it forward as if this group, the Mitchell's Plain Backyard Dwellers Association, is giving out plots of land to people legally. So they're distributing plots of land. And Mitchell's Plain Backyard Dwellers Association, as it turns out, was a front group for the African National Congress, the ANC. But even leaving that to the, you know, that's why they're operating here. They're trying to move, to, to basically create an ANC outpost in solidly, Mitchell's Plain is solidly Democratic Alliance territory. So in a rival party's territory. But what they do is they convince people that there's this legal distribution of plots and everyone pays a very small fee. It's not much. It's, Equivalent of like a U.S. dollar, less even, but it's a fact of payment, and they write it in a little book, and then they get their plot, and everyone shows up that morning, and they think they're they're on their hands and knees doing, you know, earmarking their plots, and some of them are like putting bits of string around to say like this is my property, and I mean really propertarian logic about the whole thing, in um, that occupation. And it has to do with how it was articulated. Now think about it: people are coming from backyards. Which are rather atomized by definition,
0: mm.
1: and so when they emerge, when they come, and they see this is the distribution of individual plots of "quote unquote" private property, which isn't quite a legal title, they organize one. Way. In the book, I call this following the um, the philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre. Uh, he calls it a series or serializing the population, basically atomizing. Um, He uses in the book the example of people waiting in line for a bus. They're together, but they're acting simultaneously, but not collectively. Mm. And that's what this occupation in Captain's clip was like. Really different articulation of of the project of occupation in Ziklalo. So in Ziklalo what happens is you have people who first they're not primarily backyarders, they're people who are organizing in um, a large informal settlement next in the next township over to the West, Philippi, Um, Samora Michelle is the name of the the informal settlement. Part of it's an informal settlement. And so they're organizing there. They have a long history of encountering the repressive arm of the state, the police. So as they've built shacks in um, the kind of interstices of Samora Michelle, uh, they've faced police over the years also a number of them had histories in the anti-apartheid movement um, some of the older folks were real organizers and especially in in the mid 80s i mean if you think about the udf is from mitchell's plane initially or if we think about maybe you don't like the udf and you prefer the national forum and that whole tradition and think about what percentage of early contributors to those debates are coming even from Mitchell's plain. It's a real history of anti-apartheid organizing there. I argue that this, these two things, this ex- recent experience of repression, but while living in an informal settlement instead of atomized backyards, and this history of uh, social movement organization leads them to articulate the, the project of occupation really differently. It's not the distribution of plots, it's let's do this together, basically. And so Sartre has this up this kind of uh opposite of the series um, in his work called the fused group and I argue that there it's articulated as a fused group something approximating a social movement they don't like to call it a social movement because they're not making demands on the state initially so the way it plays out then is I was actually a little surprised because Cigallo is right along Vanguard Drive, really major thoroughfare um, across the street is Colorado, which is like a more middle class uh, part of Mitchell's Plain. And, uh, you know, I think in an American context, it would be seen as working class or something. But but there was absolutely seen as as middle class homeowners across the mm-hmm. road. And these middle class homeowners were demanding the removal of Sicalo. Another thing I haven't mentioned is who's coming from Samora Michelle? Disproportionately isiXhosa speakers. In other words, Black Africans moving into so-called coloured space. In the case of Captain's Clip, it was also mixed, but it was overwhelmingly so-called coloured. Um, now, I would have expected whether it was about the racial politics, the party politics, the fact that Xhosa took place on private property, whereas Captain's Clip was occupying public land owned by the city, owned by the municipality, I would have expected Scalo to be gone in a week
0: mm-hmm. and Captain's
1: just let them be. The opposite happened. Captain's Clip is fully evicted within just over a year and Scalo, you can go visit today. Mm-hmm. Drive down Vanguard Drive, you'll see it on the right if you're coming from town.
0: Um, Why did that happen? Because it's, I mean, I was also quite surprised by, by that finding um, because as you as you've just said, one would expect that the group which is mobilizing to become a more or less coherent uh, political force is the one that's going to appear as more threatening to the state and the one yeah. will provoke a much more heavy-handed response from the state. Whereas the group which is acting with some uh political proximity to the state already um is is kind of uh connected to um to the machinations of of the municipal government the the group that is um organizing on uh, or or assigning people to 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 plots on on public land as you said that would seemingly be the group that's left alone but as you've uncovered the opposite happens how come Mm.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's right, that, that um, you would think that in Cicalo where there's something like a fighting body, and they were. I mean, these were militant marches uh, when the, uh, the body that comes and registers new voters set up a, a tent in the middle of Van- just along Vanguard Drive to register voters. What happens? Oh, residents of Cicalo come and they set it on fire and throw it in the road. Why? Nice. They, don't like they hate voting or whatever. They see it as a symbol of the state mm. and they're engaged in conflict. So you would imagine that they would be seen as a threat and a victim. Why aren't they? And I think this says a lot about how states see. When we imagine how states see, we think like, oh, they know what's you know, it's omniscient and they, they know everything that's going on. In my experience, Housing officials have a kind of caricature, they can't possibly um, monitor every single land occupation on the scale, so they don't know every little bit of militancy. So what do they know? What do they encounter? Well, when this goes to the courts, something interesting starts to happen. So in Captain's clip, which is the serialized, fragmented one, they get a lawyer. And so there are these um, legal NGOs that provide free legal service for this kind of thing in South Africa, admittedly, they're way overburdened. And so the waiting time can also be long, but you know, like the, the legal resource center or some some of these groups, lawyers for human rights. So they get someone from, from the LRC, but who is going to interface between a thousand squatters and this lawyer? who's not going to come and yell to a 1,000 people every time he wants to. Leave. He's not even going to drive out there every time. So he needs a go-between. Who are they going to elect? Tough. They can't because they're factionalized. They start to break into factions, protecting each other little plots of land with their immediate neighbors. And so each faction then jockeys for access to the lawyer. And so when they actually get to court, what happens? Well, the lawyer calls his person, the contact, and the contact tells their people in an occupation and not everyone else but then everyone else in the occupation is like what there's a court date we're going too." and they go and then you can see squabbling in the courtroom where you know certain people are not on the government's list of who's supposed to be in occupation or that kind of thing and it's seen us to put it bluntly squabbling
0: mm. in
1: the case of cicalo yes we can say they form this fighting body and blah 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 I don't think they posed much of a threat to the state apparatus or something. Um, yeah, so they set a thing on fire and they're burning some tires in the road. And it's not to say that's not important or has no effect, but it is to say, what does the state really care about? Well, when they go to the courtroom, they've constituted themselves as something approximating a social movement. They've actually elected a leadership. And so in the book, I talk about how it starts with the election of this one guy who's this charismatic leader, I call him Bong Kosi in the book, um, and subsequently gets democratized, and they elect a committee at first of seven people and later 13 people. And, and that committee, then each representative, I mean, it's like they have their own little parliament. And each of those people represents a section of this massive, what, what becomes a massive occupation, and you have section A and B and C and D, and then the representative for each. And so what happens is the lawyer calls the committee members. Or the chairperson of the committee and then when they go to court they're set no one's fighting they're, they're, they're in it together mm. and so what's interesting is when you read through the court rulings totally moralistic language mm. in one case the judge says you guys yeah maybe you've been deceived by the mitchell's plain backyard dwellers association they're reprehensible and awful terrible but also you guys gotta go in the case of Stralo, it, it's almost framed as a human rights issue. Mm-hmm. Like, where are these people going to go? And now there's too many to do anything. And the city's, you know, that's not how the city frames it. That's how the court frames it. The city, if you read their um, statement in court, and a lot of stuff is available on a lot of these cases. If you read their the transcript of their statement in court, they're still up, but. I mean, they're basically the same cases, but where does it stick? It sticks when the judge sees factionalism as opposed to this unity. And so, again, I don't think it's as simple as, therefore, if you're united, you're going to beat eviction. No, there are a lot of intervening factors here. I'm not trying to to make this one-to-one, like, this is the cause type argument, Mm -hmm. so much as to look at these dynamics and to show that how the state sees populations is actually impacted by how people self-organize themselves, which is... Self impacted by how they see the state, so we get this relational view. And yeah, I can break off a little part of it and say, "Aha, this is," or Aha, this is it but it's more of the cycle, right?" And I'm trying to this whole cycle in the book. And if people want to read it in causal way, I'd be my guest. But I don't find that as interesting as looking at the broader dynamics of how the state envisions these populations, which really explain. You know, and, and the last thing i been, been rambling at, The last thing I'll say here is that we just expected this to be some kind of like real estate state that targets based on profitability and evicts people, and and what we're seeing here is less an economic dynamic than a political one, mm. which doesn't mean it's not a capitalist state. Or no, of course it is. It's very much a, a capitalist state but this is what really irks when people talk about you know there's this long-standing debate is is south africa after apartheid neoliberal and like side and sinatras and um adam habib no no it's a it's a real welfare state it's social democracy and on the other side you have um i mean people leave a name saying no no it's just pure neoliberal well it's not This massive housing delivery apparatus, and there are these housing officials who it's not that they don't care, paradoxically, they're evicting in the name of housing delivery. Mm-hmm. They think that, you know, I was hoping to find some like monsters that I could then write some easy book about how terrible they are, um, and that's not what happened. That's not what happened. I think this idea of is it neo, this question of is it neoliberal or? or social democratic welfare state, it's both at once and has elements of, of the two sort of articulated together. And we need to, to figure out how that there, therefore um, impacts popular politics, because we can't just imagine like, I don't know, I think it's, uh, I don't think it's strategically useful when we say like the left should organize in you know, such a way without thinking about the terrain upon which they're organizing. And so, what, you know, maybe it's a pessimistic analysis in the book, but I don't see it that way. I see it as actually knowing the strategic
0: terrain. Thinking about the, the terrain in which we're organizing, and I think it's, it's critical that you mentioned how almost the, the, the decisive stage in this political sequence or chronology that you're laying out in the book is what happens in the courtroom. And and in South Africa, South Africa is unique as you explain in that it has a very particular legal institutional context where we have the supposedly progressive constitution which recognizes a right to adequate housing and also safeguards a freedom from arbitrary eviction. But that's not so straightforward. And so it's up to the courts to interpret exactly what that means. And so that's when these occupations are, are brought to the courtrooms and, and these adjudications are, are made. Could you talk a, a bit about, maybe lay out firstly, that legal institutional context, um, which results in, uh, as you as you say in the book, the judicialization of politics or the judicialization of of resistance um and then how does it become the case that judges who are brought on to to referee these disputes are are always in search of um to put it crudely almost uh an example of a, of a deserving poor, so to speak. So as you were saying just now, they will often, not always, but often decide in favor of, of, um, occupiers who appear unified, coherent, um, and harmonious and, and they interpret occupiers or occupying groups that are beset by factionalism and, 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 And political squabbles as as disorderly um and opportunistic so uh, can you talk a little bit about how those perceptions come about um and how they become so influential so as to have a bearing on on how these um cases are, are adjudicated in the courts
1: oh great set of questions so starting with uh the the kind of legal institutional framework so the um The 1996 constitution, first post-apartheid constitution, um, in its bill of rights has a section 26 that guarantees the right to housing, um, though of course it qualifies this right uh, and it talks about um, the state needing to progressively realize this right, meaning the state has limited capacity and so the courts can then determine when is the state um, you know, working to the best of its ability to deliver houses and when does it need to try harder, you know, to put it kind of bluntly here. But this um, Section 26 requires that everyone have access to adequate housing. And then there's a second part that says, or the state has to at least try to make that the case. And then a third part that prevents against arbitrary eviction. Mm. Um, now, first, I just wanted to note how interesting it is that the two concepts in the book, delivery and dispossession, are here in a kind of couplet in section 26 of the of the Bill of Rights, the part about eviction and the part about housing delivery, getting access to housing. Now, when people are evicted, it's not like the can just come in and, and will and do, um, but were people to know their rights and get a lawyer involved and in whatever else, they may be able to beat it. Um, the way it normally proceeds, and this changes on the basis of, of the Constitutional Court case law, but the way it normally proceeds is the government needs to offer what they use as accommodation in the case of eviction. So let's say they want, um, in the case of Captain's Clip, let's say they wanted to evict those people. They need to offer them housing, alternative accommodation. What is it like? Well, they were offered a spot in Blikisdorp, uh, the temporary relocation area, essentially a government run refugee camp um, out in Blue Down. I mean, sorry, out in um, Delft in Cape Town, far on the periphery, and no one wanted to go. So I interviewed a couple of the people who were on uh, the other hires. See the area. Um, they were brought there by, by someone from the Department of Human Settlements. And they told me that when they asked, So where's the school? Um, I pointed over there. It's over there. And they're like, well, we can't see the school. And he's like, yeah, it's a little down the road. Um, and when they got there, residents were telling them, don't move here. It's like um, it's too violent and you don't understand how it works here. And people people were terrified. And so they turned down the Blicky's Dorp option in this TRA, this temporary relocation area. Because they turned it down, that was their offer of alternative accommodation. They are therefore legally able to face eviction. So, you know, it's progressive insofar as it requires the offer of alternative accommodation and is supposed to prevent it against eviction, but in lines of path, these notoriously stigmatized TRAs, temporary relocation areas, Cape Town and and Joburg they call them transit camps every city has some version of this um, where then if the city or the municipality makes an offer um, in for a spot on that TRA they're therefore subject or can be subject to eviction now when it gets to the courts um and this is what I call uh drawing on um an old piece by the the off uh, where they they coined this phrase judicialization of resistance and i mean sorry judicialization of politics but the way i talk about it in the book is as if all of this politics begins as organic class struggle politics demands uh or it's like a uh attempt to to retake the land gets kicked up to the judiciary i and pretty well in a not really different character politics. Now, when it comes to why would then a judge automatically reverse moralizing rhetoric? Because they do. I mean, again, and again, you see it, I think so much of it has to do with this belief in the figure of the queue jumper, not understand that the queue jumper is a figure produced by the state.
0: Mm.
1: Produced by housing officials. Instead, truly believing that they're opportunists trying to undermine what they view as the welfare state. So this notion that there's a kind of social democratic delivery apparatus, that's a key component of the uh, post-apartheid state. And when you think about it, I mean, even early on, the ANC articulated the project of, um, well, really its own legitimacy in terms of housing delivery. You know, Mandela was talking about a million homes in the first five years. And it becomes really, really central to the project of, of creating the post-apartheid welfare state. Mm. Um, and so insofar as judges see people as undermining that that um, state, I think it turns moralistic when they start to, to describe them as ungrateful. Mm. And we'll say something like, what you have uh, section 26 guarantees you access to housing and freedom from eviction not realizing that people don't have housing and are currently facing eviction um, but in that that kind of abstract guarantee is read as part of this progressive welfare state and you ungrateful people are not to make it work you're therefore under state and so i think many of them you know as much as i but slightly differently. Um I think ultimately what it is is that they view the delivery apparatus as this um benevolent. And insofar as people are challenging functioning of that institution, they want them gone yeah. paradigm in the name of protecting the delivery apparatus, and therefore they protect the poor. I think it's something like
0: that. Mm. Mm. I think, yeah, that's yeah. I think that's that's really, really useful. Um, and I wanna maybe maybe and and to draw the the conversation to a close, you mm-hmm. you spoke about how this this book is not a, a handbook for for how to organize and in in talking about seat color vis-a-vis. Captain's Clip and the relative successes and failures that each occupying movement faced. You're not sort of saying this is what leads to success and that's what leads to failure. But I think what's useful about the book is that it draws out the, the different dynamics which lead to um, surprising results. And um, I know he's a he's a collaborator of yours as well, but uh, I think your book pairs well with, with Marcel. Pare's um, Frank militancy, which came out recently, and if, if if listeners want, there's a there's a great review of of the book by uh, Ben Bradlow in Africa as a country, and and I think I think the 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 concept of hegemony and how you're careful not to call them social movements, but for want of a better term, social movements can end up being incorporated into the system, so to speak, unwittingly. And thereby, kind of reproduce the logics of those systems that keep them going, and how participation in that system arises out of necessity and inevitably and can sometimes lead to uh, demobilizing tendencies I think is, is is really fascinating and And I think it's it's this it leads to this kind of dilemma and and maybe i' I'm, I'm being. Um, too reductive here. Where, on the one hand, the kind of the radical potential of of social organizing in, in in South Africa often stems from having distance between the group in question and the state, because that's when you kind of avoid all of the efforts at capture. That's when you avoid. Um, The ways in which integration into um, formal democratic channels and institutions comes with increased access to to resources and goods and can result in sort of clientelistic models of distribution and that sort of worsens factionalism and so on and so forth. Um, So, the, the success of a group, uh, or at least the initial success of a group, often seems to be um, when it's at the stage, when it's it's not um, in, in such close contact with the states. And that contact with the state often uh, creates a, a demobilizing um, effect. Um, but in order to kind of advance political projects further South Africa, as you point out, um, they often are in and around contestations with with the state, um, and you talk uh, greatly about you know we shouldn't think of the state as this coherent actor that just imposes on passive populations, but as you've said before, um, are, are shaped by how those populations present themselves, um, and and so that organizing becomes does have an important bearing. So if we could. So, if we could think about how we can sort of how a a, a, a remobilized left in South Africa, which comes one day inshallah, or how that left can can sort of begin to to encourage um, the politicized or the further politicization of of, of occupying movements. Um, Towards the kind of militancy of organisations such as abahlali for some John Jondola in their heyday, or the anti eviction anti eviction campaign in their heyday, or the Landless People's Movement in their heyday. If you could build a a, a movement of, of occupiers, if such a thing is possible, um, what would what would that depend on? Um, and I mean, you're careful not to to, to have prescriptions, but. Um, if you if you were to indulge in that, um, what would you say? Sure.
1: You know, I think it's really important to have a kind of sober assessment of the trajectory of the movements that have already existed, and you know, I I think a number of the groups you've mentioned. Right, I think there have been others that have been great, but to peter out for one reason or another. Um, sometimes it has to do with, with squabbling over international funders or um, sometimes through engagement with the state. And, but, but one really important lesson I think we can draw here is, you know, you, you, I think the way you framed the question was to, um, to ask about a kind of mass organization of land occupiers. Mm. And, I think I might even zoom out a little more um, and talk about. You know, when, when I first started going to Cape Town, a group called the Housing Assembly had just launched. Um, I went to one of their, their very first meetings. And what was so interesting about the way that they talked about politics, I mean, it really stayed with me and I think influenced the book, is that they were less interested in building an organization of land occupiers or squatters or backyarders but to actually take all of these various um, sort of, I don't know, sectional identities Mm. and unite them into subjects of housing crisis. Mm. So those receiving shoddy RDP houses that are falling apart, those who are just on the waiting list, those who are occupiers, those who are renters, those who are in social housing, all these different groups are fragmented almost artificially. Mm. And so one, to build unity, two to make sure it's citywide so i think often what happens is you get like um, these organizations tend to have a home base and based be based in one settlement or just a couple settlements and i think it's really really important to build um, democratic organizations in multiple townships at once simultaneously and have almost like branches that then report back to a general structure and it's not that i think it needs to be this ossified Structure per se, so much as it needs to be representative in that kind of way. Um, but more broadly, yeah, I mean, I don't think I can give a roadmap to success so much as to say, I think the thing that gets overlooked here is this moment that you point to of incorporation into the state project, which ultimately leads to demobilization. In other words, what begins being more militant and taking land pretty soon becomes. Please can you just let us stay here? Can we get something and they like cheer when they are allowed to stay here? Which and yes, it's a victory in that they're not evicted, but it's not a victory in that they're squatting on an open field, however many decades after apartheid ended, right? So um yeah, I just think this this strategic context of understanding how incorporation or hegemony really, really important. That that kind of you know some might read my book as pessimistic but i would say it's pessimistic so that it can be optimistic in other words i i think if we want these movements to succeed they need to know the terrain upon which they're operating and if again and again this stuff gets channeled into the courts and attracted legal battle you know from um, class struggle to class action then it completely changes the character of the politics. And it, it no longer feels like popular politics. You delegated the politics to a lawyer who's doing the thing on your behalf, and you get demoralized. And um, so I think it's really, really important also to build, um, you know, at a basic level, an eviction defense network um, where occupiers are. are um, publicizing this stuff in addition to physically defending an occupation, but that can be hard because saps comes out with um, literal caspers and blasts water, you know, water candidate people and fires rubber bullets. And this is like, it's quite violent. Mm-hmm. And I don't expect everyone to put their lives on the line or whatever else. But um, I do think it's really, really important at a at a minimum, to publicize this stuff. Because I think for international listeners, you're probably thinking if thousands of people occupy a plot of land, that's front page news. No. It's, you know, Cape Town, every once in a while there's some Cape Times story on page seven or something mm. that's like two paragraphs long about those poor people occupying some land somewhere. But land occupations are, are there. And so I think it's really important. To publicize the scale and to push back against this absurd narrative of queue jumping and that this is like an undeserving poor, or something. it's people who are trying to fend for themselves in the meanwhile as they're waiting on the housing, a uh, housing, uh, housing waiting list. So um, I think even before we get to the point, because I mean you know the terrain of the South African left is <laughs> probably better than than I do, but like it's not particularly. Uh, you know, fertile terrain right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but I do think at a minimum, um, that in addition to building organizations in this sort of way they're citywide and that include all subjects of housing crisis, I think it's really important to publicize that this kind of stuff is happening because people don't know. in Cape Town, Oh no, because it doesn't make the news. So, i mean starting point that and, and starting to strategize in the context of an incorporating state in the context of a demobilizing state that whether or not it's intentional has the effect of demobilizing mass movements and i think we need to take that as our point of departure and realize that contact with this you know as soon as some household comes and says all right let's informal housing it seems enticing, but you will end up in these um protracted court battles which changes the character of the politics altogether and pretty soon you're not taking land and defending it you're relying on a lawyer and i think that demobilizes and you know i think we see what happens when people demobilize mm-hmm. so yeah i think you know as a, as a kind of starting
0: point i would say that I think that's absolutely useful, and I mean, I, I appreciate. I think a, a pessimistic analysis is is always warranted. But to channel uh, Gramsci, who is a prominent uh, theorist in your in your book, uh, always striving for a pessimism of the intellect, but an optimism of the will is is a is a useful strategy to go by, and and knowing the the terrain, uh, but being prepared to to do the best we can within it is is always a good starting point as well. Uh, Zach, thank you so much for coming onto the program. A reminder of who I've been talking to. I'm chatting with Zachary Levinson, who's an assistant professor of sociology at the University of North Carolina. And we are talking about his latest book. It's titled Delivery as Dispossession, Land Occupation and Eviction in the post apartheid City, which just came out with Oxford University Press. Zach, would you like to tell everyone where they can get a copy of the book?
1: You can if you go to the Oxford University Press um, website, you can just search for my name, and the book will come up. Um, and you can get thirty uh, percent off if you use the code A S F L Y Q six. So as fly, unclear why that's the code, but as fly Q six, and that'll give you thirty percent off. Brilliant. Uh, but if you great. just
0: go to Oxford University Press website, it's available there. <laughs> I, I don't know why it's As Fly Q6, but uh, the oddity <laughs> of it make it easier to remember. So you heard it and do get a copy. It's a, it's a fantastic book. Uh, and Zach, thank you so much for coming onto the program. And to you, our listeners, thank you so much for listening. I'm William Shorkey uh at africa's a country do remember to subscribe to this wherever you listen to your podcasts spotify apple google stitcher and to follow africa's a country on all social media channels but most importantly head over to africa's to check out new writing on the continent from a left perspective on politics and culture until our next episode goodbye